Thank you, Callie. Kids are not dismissed, so if any got up and left, you might want to retrieve them. We have uh, changed what we're doing. We, we would like to see kids getting into the habit of being a part of our worship service. And so on Communion Sundays, we are going to ask that the kids that are normally dismissed will stay in here so you understand why we're doing that. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and um, we will be there just a few moments. This is kind of a, um, an introduction message, if you will, into our Vision Sunday for next week. So I want to take the time uh, to go through really um, kind of a hard attitude that we need to have as we pr- head into next week. If you've been in my office before and you're, you're observant, you probably noticed that um, somewhere on my shelf I have displayed a baseball. Um, some have asked me about it, some haven't. You've maybe noticed it, maybe you haven't. Um, this baseball is, is special to me and, and for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was given to me by my brother a few years ago. He was uh, at an event and this individual was there and he signed it and so it was a gift from my brother and I so I appreciate it. Also, another reason it's significant is because of who signed it. Um, the man that signed it is a man by the name of Gary Carter. Any of you ever heard of Gary Carter? Okay, a few people. Didn't expect many to hear of Gary Carter. Um, in case you haven't figured it out, Gary Carter played baseball. Okay, he wasn't a football player. Well, actually, he was, but uh, that's uh, another story. But uh, I keep this baseball in my office because it's special to me. Why is it special? I I told you part of that. I started following sports when I was uh, eight years old, and uh, that's when I first started following professional sports really seriously. Before that, I kind of knew about it, but I didn't really pay much attention. Uh, When I first started following, really the only team I cared about was the New York Mets. I grew up in Connecticut, and um, if you don't, if you want to know a little glimpse into my personality, my entire family in Connecticut, you either cheered for the Red Sox or the Yankees, except me. I cheered for the Mets. There was a few of us, not many, but uh, I decided I was going to be different. My whole family cheered for the Red Sox. I decided I was going to cheer for the Mets. And so I started following them, and I was very faithful to them. I was incredibly faithful to the team. In fact, uh, I, I, I knew everything about the, the New York Mets. When I was 10 years old, I started to deliver the morning newspaper. Um, every uh, day, uh, I would get up early in the morning, 5.30, and I would go out and, and I would have to take the newspapers and deliver it to, oh, I had probably about 40 to 50 customers that I delivered to. But before I would deliver, I would actually sit down and read the sports section. I would read about the New York Mets players. I would read about the individuals that uh, were uh, on the team. And I I could tell you um, anything you wanted to know. I could tell you, I knew the batting order of the New York Mets. I knew uh, the the average of each player. I knew knew everything about them as much as I possibly could. Well, one of my favorite players was Gary Carter. Gary Carter was the catcher on the team. He was an interesting guy. He worked hard. He was a, he was a good guy. Uh, I've read about him after the fact. And he was, he was a, a nice man. And, 
And uh, I knew a lot about him. I knew how many home runs he had. I knew his batting average. I knew, uh, I knew that he was actually in college or in high school. He was a, a, a well-known football player, and he was recruited by USC to be their quarterback and decided that he didn't want to go to college and play football, and so he ended up going to baseball. Um, I followed his career. He was drafted by the Montreal Expos and then went to the Mets, and after that he traveled to a couple teams and ended up Montreal again. In 2003, he was, uh, he was placed into the Hall of Fame. In 2011, he was diagnosed with a cancerous brain tumor very severe, and within a matter of, I think it was six months, he, he died. Here's the thing, is I know a lot about Gary Carter, but I never knew him. I never had a relationship with him. But I think many people in churches today, you know a lot of stats about God. You can describe God. You don't really know Him. You don't have an intimate relationship with Him. And I'm not saying that about everyone in here. I'm not even saying that about a large group of people in here, but I, I, I can guarantee there are people here that that would define. In the Bible, there was a group of individuals who were like that. Uh, we know them as the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew a lot about God. They knew they could tell you everything that the Old Testament said, but they did not really know God. In fact, Jesus defined them this way. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Unfortunately, I think that verse describes many people today. I think that verse describes a large population of, of Christians in our churches throughout our nation today. And so I want to ask you a very simple question this morning that I'm going to lay out the entire time. And actually, there's a number of questions I want, want to address with you. And I want you to really be honest with yourself. And I want to ask you, do you have a knowledge of God or do you have a relationship with God? Let's look at the passage that we're looking at this morning in, in Luke chapter 7, and I, I will read, I don't have it on the screen so you can follow along in your Bibles, in Luke chapter 7 starting in verse 36, and we will read all the way down to the end of the chapter. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, "This man, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who, he is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the greater debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. And turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but 
She has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. God, I am thankful for the opportunity I have to share with this congregation this fantastic passage. Lord, and I pray that you'll help us to be people who desire not just knowledge of you, but a relationship with you. Pray that you'll help me to share your words, not my own. We ask this in your name. Amen. I want to give you a background of the story that's taking place here. Jesus is preaching in Galilee, and he's been preaching in Galilee for about a year. The common people had received him gladly. In fact, this is a point of his ministry where he's very popular. And a lot of it has to do with what he's doing, not really necessarily what he's saying, but what he's saying is interesting as well. But at this point, he's doing a lot of miracles. He's healed a leper. He's he's healed a paralytic. Dozens of other people had been healed. He cast out a demon from a man. He raised the widow's son from the dead. All this had taken place before the events we see here in chapter 7. So the people loved him. But the Pharisees had already grown cold to his influence. Why? Well, Jesus didn't come and pander to their crowd. He didn't come and say nice things to the Pharisees. In fact, on occasion, he would say things that ruffled their feathers and he challenged their rules. We just went through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. They did not like the Sermon on the Mount because it questioned them. And so they didn't know how to respond to him. They didn't like him, but they didn't know what to do. The people liked him. And so how do we handle this guy? Do we just quietly ignore him? Or, Or maybe possibly we publicly oppose him. I don't know if that's a good idea. The people like him. Or maybe we, had, we attempt to entrap him. Do something to get Jesus to do the wrong thing. And, and many of them started to do that. Or, or maybe we find some other way to destroy Christ. But we've got to do something. Here's this guy, Simon. He's a Pharisee. And I think he found that he thought he had a way to take care of the problem. He decides maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll humiliate him. And so, he does what is very common in that day. Jesus would have been going and he would have often gone to the synagogue and he would have, being in the synagogue, he would have taught. This was a very common thing. Jesus was viewed as a rabbi. We even see in the passage that Simon says to him, you know, calls him a teacher, which is a rabbi. And, and so they had this understanding. And so it would have been a very normal thing for Simon, the Pharisee in the area, uh, uh, probably a well-to-do Pharisee, to invite the, the visiting rabbi in. And so he invites Jesus over for a meal. As I said, this would be very common. Maybe Simon was doing this out of obligation. This would have been expected for the Pharisee to invite the visiting rabbi. Maybe that's what he was doing. Or maybe he was doing that because he was trying to find a way to discredit Jesus. Whatever his motive, it's unclear. We see he invites him over. Jesus should have been an honored guest. Jesus should have been treated special, but we see by Jesus' own words that he wasn't. There were certain customs that Jesus mentions that should have been commonplace when you invite a guest over your house, just as there is today. Customs that 
uh, when entertaining guests, number one, one of them would have been the kiss of greeting. The common method of greeting in the time of Jesus would have been a kiss. We see this method used throughout Scripture. You see, when people greet, that they oftentimes, I just read through the book of Genesis this week, and we see that many times throughout the book of Genesis, they meet someone and they kiss them. It's a common thing. Even in, in today, there's still certain cultures that do that. We, I've been to Uruguay a couple times now. In Uruguay, it's, it's very common. You go up and, and you kiss uh, each other on the cheek. So it was a normal course of what they would have done. And uh, if the person is of equal social rank uh, in the Bible times, in Jesus' time, if they were of equal social rank, then you would have kissed them on the cheek. Maybe one, maybe both, depending on your relationship with them. If the person was of high honor, then the custom was to kiss their hand. If they were really high honor, then you would get down on your knee and you would kiss their hand and to show them great respect. To not greet this way was an insult. To not greet this way was almost a slap in the face. It would be equivalent today to having someone over your house and having a group of people and have one individual that you don't even talk to. It was an insult. Simon does not greet Jesus with a kiss. You see, the second thing is water for the feet. In that time, they would have ate in such a way that was interesting. They would, the table would be almost to, to ground level. They would have pillows all around and they would lay on their, with, their, with their elbow kind of on their, on their face like this and lay down and their feet would be behind them. It was a time period where you know, everything was dusty. Israel was dusty and they would walk around and the roads were all made of dirt and dust. And so just in the course of walking around, your feet would get quite filthy. So the common practice is if you came into a home, if, if you highly respected the guest, then what would take place is the guest would walk in and you personally as the host would go and wash their feet to show respect to them. Maybe, maybe you are a little bit more wealthy and that's not the way you treat her. Maybe it was just a regular guest. You might, you might uh, have them come in and have their, your servant come over and, and wash their feet. Maybe it was just someone who was passing through and you didn't see them as being that honorable or that great. You would at least give them water and say, here, you can wash your own feet. We see Simon didn't do any of those. In fact, the idea of ignoring a foot washing would suggest that the host doesn't really want you in the house. and They're trying to get you to leave as quickly as possible. You know, if you, you know, go today and you... I go visit someone, you knock at the door, and you know they come and they greet you at the door, but they don't invite you in. They just kind of stand there. It's pretty a quick hint. They want you to leave. <laughs> That's what Simon's doing here. Didn't really want him there. See the last one, it says the oil for the head. Again, this was a common custom of the day that when a guest would come, you would anoint their head with oil. Showed respect. Typically in that time period, they would use olive oil. doesn't seem like maybe something fun to do, but they would put olive oil on their head. Olive oil was very common because there was olive trees all over the place, and so the olive oil would have been uh, the most inexpensive way of doing it. But it showed honor. And Jesus comments that Simon did not do any of these things. He didn't greet Jesus with a kiss. 
He didn't wash his feet. He didn't anoint his head with oil. This had to be a very deliberate decision by Simon to say, I am not going to do this. Now here, get this point for a minute here. Simon had an incredible knowledge of God. In fact, as a Pharisee, Simon would have spent his entire life studying the Old Testament. It is said that Pharisees, uh, Paul commented on on how much he knew Scripture because he was a Pharisee. Pharisees, by the age of 15, most Pharisees would have memorized the entire Old Testament. Think about that for a moment. The entire Old Testament. The Old Testament records over 300 prophecies that, that delineate who the Messiah is and what the Messiah will do. And here, Simon, who had memorized all 30 of those passages, he would have known that the Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem. He would have known that the Messiah was going to be born of a virgin. He would have known all those things. And he has the Messiah sitting right in front of him. He knows all the facts, and yet he does not care because he does not have a relationship with him. He does not bother to kiss him, wash his feet, or anoint his head with oil. He had a knowledge, but he had no relationship. How do you define your relationship with God? You know, too often we define our relationship with God by what we do. By what we do. For years as a youth pastor, I've led, I've led many mission trips. And every time I go on a mission trip, what I do is I have, and I've, we're going this summer and I've done it, by the way, <laughs> Uh, I've only had two, two applications turned in, so if you're planning on going, please do that. Uh, but every time I have people fill out an application, why do I do that? Well, there's a number of reasons. But one of them is I want to gauge the individual where they're at in their relationship with God. And so almost every trip I will ask a question, one question in very similar way, sometimes a little different wording. I will ask this question, how do you define your relationship with God? Or I'll say it this way, describe your relationship with God. What I find is interesting is that inevitably I get very similar answers, whether it's from teens or whether it's from adults. I get something like this. Well, I got saved here. Or I'll get this. Well, I try to read my Bible. Or, well, I've been been in church my whole life. And honestly, none of those describe a relationship with God. I got one this year that uh, I, I... saw and I was like, this person gets it. And they said, he is my Lord and Savior and I love him dearly. But how do we define our relationship? We often base our relationship on what we do, what we know, you know what, we, what we think. We don't base our relationship on the right thing. We focus a lot on, on what we know. Much of what the Pharisees held onto for their religion was based on knowledge, based on uh, fact, but yet we do the same thing. We go to Bible studies, we go to Sunday school. We, we're proud of the fact that we read through the Bible in a year, not bad things. You know, you grew up and, and you went to vacation Bible school every summer. Sometimes, some of you, if you're of the right generation, you went every week of the summer. You're in here, you went through Awana, you, you got your Timothy Award, still sitting at home, you've memorized all of this passage of Scripture. And don't get me wrong, none of that is wrong. It's not wrong for us to memorize Scripture. In fact, Jesus in His preaching referenced, read, and quoted Scripture over and over and over again. Jesus knew the Bible. It's not wrong to know the Bible. The problem is, knowledge is not intimacy. 
Knowledge is not relationship. You can have knowledge without intimacy, but you cannot have intimacy without a growing knowledge. Let me give you an example of this. Let's say I was to hand out surveys to all of you, and I say, okay, I want to find a little bit more about you. So I hand out a survey to you, and I ask you questions like this. What's your favorite kind of candy? What is some funny stories about you? What is your biggest fears? You know what? I have knowledge about you, but I may not have intimacy. I may not have a relationship. I mean, I might know, I might know that one of you, your favorite uh, candy bar is Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay? I like you, because it's mine too. But that doesn't mean I have a relationship with you. But here's the thing. The closer I get to my wife, the more I know her likes. The more I know her uh, funny stories. The more I know her fears. The idea there is knowledge about God without a relationship is nothing. Just like the Pharisees. He, the Pharisee, he knew all about God. He could quote all the Old Testament, and yet he had Jesus sitting right in front of him, and he didn't care because he had no relationship with God. What does it mean to you to know God? There's an interesting word that I want to go through in the Old Testament that means to know. It's the Hebrew word yada. Okay, I'm going to say that quite a few times, so get used to it. But the word yada means to know completely or to be known completely. It was a term that was used oftentimes in the Old Testament as a covenant term. It was a term of, uh, of a covenant relationship that you may have with someone. And it is the idea of, an, of a, an intimate relationship. And so because of this relationship, you establish a covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, most of the time it was translated no. But the word yada was also translated sometimes as chosen. Let me give you an example in, in uh, this passage in Genesis. This is a passage where, if you remember the story where, where, where the Lord appears to Abraham and He says He's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and He has other men with Him. And these other men then go from, from visiting with Abraham to Sodom to talk to Lot. And, and, when, and as they're getting ready to do that, the Lord turns to those other men and begins to describe His relationship with Abraham. And He says this, for I have chosen, I have Yadah him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham in what he has promised, what he has promised him. What is he saying in that passage? He's saying to those individuals, those other men who are with him, he's saying, I have a relationship with Abraham. And I have known him, and because I have known him, I have a personal relationship with him. I have entered into an unbreakable covenant with him. This word was an ancient word. It would often be used between one king and another that built a relationship, and they said, I've made a covenant with you that we will keep true to our word. It's interesting, if you look in Scripture, the first time that this word is used in Scripture is in, in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. And, and it's talking about the relationship between Adam and Eve, and it says this, Now Adam knew, or yada Eve his wife. We often think of that as a physical relationship, and it is, but there's more to it than that. Adam was faithful to the covenant of marriage to which he and Eve had entered. A covenant which meant he would have a spiritual and a physical oneness with her and she with him. And they would have no such relationship with anyone else. 
It was a commitment to that. This physical relationship in marriage is an essential part of being one. We understand that. But yet, uh, it's more than that. The physical relationship does not exhaust the meaning of the word no in this passage. Though that's what we often think about, but it's more than that. There's this covenant sense to the marriage relationship. To know one's spouse means to be faithful to one's spouse, not only in the physical relationship, but also in all other aspects, in support, in comfort, in friendship, in service. And so what God was saying here was Adam had a covenant relationship with Eve, a permanent covenant relationship where he knew her intimately, not just physically, but in every aspect of their relationship. You know, that word yadah appears throughout the Old Testament. And you can turn there if you want, but I want to look in Psalm 139 because in Psalm 139 it actually appears a number of different times. And and, in this relationship, it's David speaking about his relationship with God. And notice how he defines his relationship with God. First of all, he talks about how God's relationship to him. And notice what he says. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known yadah me. God knows you intimately. Says, he goes on, he says, You know, yada, when I sit down, when I rise up. God has an intimate knowledge of that. Goes on and he says in, next, in verse 4, he says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know, yada, it all together. Lord, you are intimately acquainted with what I say. It goes on in verse 14, and then he switches it. And in this verse, it's now David speaking back to God, saying, God, and I know you. Look what he says there in that passage. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. My soul knows it very well. My soul, yada, my soul is intimately acquainted with you. Verse 23, he sums up the chapter and he says, Search me, O God, and know, yada, my heart. Try me and know, yada, my thoughts. What David is saying in this passage is he's acknowledging a relationship that is more than just a head knowledge. It's more than just a surface. It's an intimate covenant relationship that cannot be broken. We look at the New Testament, and the New Testament uses a different word. But Paul elaborates on that word in, in Philippians when he says this, describing his relationship with God and his desire for God, he says, that I may know Him. But notice what he says. He doesn't just say, I may know Him, because if we stop there, then we can say, yes, Paul knew God, knew the relationship with God. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee, so just like Simon, he had memorized all of the Old Testament. He knew God, but it's not just enough there. He says that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection. Then notice what he says next. And may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death. Notice what Paul says there is that this, his definition of knowing is more than just a head knowledge, but the sharing, which is an intimacy. It's an intimacy. You know, the Pharisee, Simon, had a head knowledge of God. A lot of times we're the same way. We're proud of who we are and what we do. 
We're proud of the fact that we teach a Sunday school class or that we serve God in this way or that we sing in the choir or that, uh, that we, we're a deacon or that we're a trustee or that we're a pastor. We're proud of those things. And those, those, aren't necess- those aren't a bad thing. But I want to look at a second individual in this story. Look back, if you will, at Luke chapter 7. And we see a woman who is described as a woman of the city who is a sinner. Now, it could be that as a sinner that she was uh, unfaithful to her spouse. It could be that. Scripture doesn't tell us. Most likely, based on the wording that is used, most likely she was a prostitute. Notice what it says in chapter 7, verse 37. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiping them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. I want you to picture the scene. I described it a few moments ago where Jesus was there and he's laying at the table and this must have been a very awkward scene. It says there that they're in the Pharisee's house. Now you say, well, how did she get in there? Well, it would have been a courtyard type situation where they were outside and they were, they were all around. And, and typically, if he was wealthy enough, he would have had a gate and he would have had someone standing at the gate. So either he wasn't wealthy enough or it's possible that somehow this woman snuck in. She wouldn't have been welcomed. So she had to get in there somehow. And she comes in and it's during the mealtime. And, and, and what causes her to come in? Why would she come into this situation? No one there would have liked her. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Maybe maybe it's possible that she had heard somewhere along the way she had heard Jesus preach. If you look back in Luke, you can see he had talked about forgiveness. Previous to this, he had preached the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe she was there and she had heard about this this man who, who, who talks about love. She had heard him talk about don't judge one another and, and, and somewhere along the way it must have impacted her enough that it drove her. Because a normal woman like this wouldn't make this move because this was a very bold, daring, and somewhat stupid move. She must have heard Jesus was there. It tells us that she learned He was reclining at the table. And she took a risk. Really a huge risk. I mean, remember for a moment, whose house is this? This is a Pharisee's house. We have other occasions where a Pharisee is there and men are gathered, religious men. And remember the story where they brought the, the adulterous woman into Jesus and they said, shouldn't she be stoned? What was the reason for that? Because uh, an unfaithful woman would be taken out into the streets and stoned. So here this woman took a huge risk coming into a Pharisee's house, risking really death. But she doesn't care. She doesn't have the knowledge that Simon has. She doesn't know the Old Testament. She probably doesn't know hardly any of the law, if any at all. She doesn't care. She's desperate because the man that she sees there is a man that she knows can change her life. So she's desperate. And picture what happens here. Jesus is at the table. He's reclining. She comes in and she comes up behind him. And as I said, Simon never washed his feet, so his feet would have been filthy. 
would have been dirty, dusty. She doesn't have water. But notice what Scripture says. She begins to weep. She begins to weep, and as she's weeping, she begins, the tears are flowing, and she uses the tears to wipe his feet. Now think about that for a moment. How much weeping must she have done for there to be enough tears to wash his feet? This wasn't a simple, oh, there's a tear coming down his cheek. This was a broken bawling that was taking place. And it's all over. She begins to clean his feet, maybe at first with her hands, but then she needs a towel. She can't ask for a towel. Simon's not going to give her a towel. Simon's not going to permit that the servants give her a towel. So what does she do? She takes another bold move. The Bible says she begins to take her hair. Now, let me explain something to you for a moment. In the Jewish culture, a woman always wore her hair up. For a woman to wear her hair down around anyone except for her husband was sin. For her to, to even have her hair down was sin, and yet she takes her hair down and she begins to use her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. And I mean, think about the, the outcome of that. Her hair would have now been dirty and nasty and grimy. But she doesn't care. Can you imagine the disgust? We see it in, the, in the, the way that they responded, the disgust of everyone standing around thinking, what in the world is this woman doing? Even the disciples would have been thinking, what is this woman doing? She didn't care. She then takes her perfume. She would have probably had a flask around her neck of perfume. As I study, I, I, I saw that many times, uh, if you go along the idea that she was a prostitute, many times prostitutes would carry this around their neck so that uh, when they were done with their act, they would then use it to, to basically take the smell away. And here she takes this, this perfume, and normally she would have used this many times, if this is the case, one drop at a time, for many men, but she takes it and she empties it all. And the Pharisee was shocked, as was many people. And he thinks within himself, notice uh, uh, if you look there, he thinks within himself in verse 39, he thinks if this, if this Jesus actually was a prophet, he would have known who this woman was. Jesus, knowing his thoughts, responds to him in verse 40 and says, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, say it, teacher. And he tells him an example. He says a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, quite a bit of money, and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon knew the answer. He says, well, I suppose the one who canceled the larger debt. He says, you have judged rightly. What was his point? Jesus' response was this. His response was, here's this woman who's broken. 
Here's this woman who had a great debt, yet her debt was canceled. He then turns and he begins talking to Simon about the woman and he describes what we had already said. He says, you know, do you see this woman? I entered in your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wiped my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he turns to the woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. This must have been a huge relief for her. She must have realized how, how horrible her sin was and that's why she came in and she was so broken and she was so distraught. And, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And, and there's an assurance there and, and, and people you know, complain about that as well. But then he looks at the woman and he says, uh, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And she's a new person. Scripture doesn't tell us after that what took place. I imagine she was a different person. But I want to ask you a question. And then we'll get into the outline, which will take us not much time at all. Of those two people, the Pharisee or the woman, which one do you identify with the most? I think if we're honest, most of us would say the Pharisee. But which one had the right relationship with God? It was the woman. The Pharisee knew much about God, but he missed who God really was. The broken sinner desired for forgiveness. And she laid out her heart to God in, in desire for a relationship. So in closing, I want to give you three questions to ask yourself and to evaluate with yourself, in which each one, I want to give you a word that goes along with it. And we'll just do this in closing. Do you have a knowledge of God or a relationship with Him? Do you have a knowledge of God or relationship with Him? Knowledge is not wrong, but knowledge does not guarantee a relationship. Knowing God does not guarantee that you have a relationship with Him. However, a growing relationship with Him guarantees a growing knowledge of Him. The word I want you to think about is the word intimacy. I've said it a few times. It's the idea we talk about in the Old Testament of knowing God. Do you yada God? Do you have a relationship with God? Do you know Him? Not like you know 2 plus 2 is 4, but do you know Him like one who has changed your life? Do you have an intimate relationship with Him? Are you here this morning and you, yeah, you can quote passage after passage after passage, but if you stop and really think about it, there's no relationship. There's a dullness there. There's, your head is full but your heart is not. The second question I want to ask you is, do you understand how much you have been forgiven? We see when Jesus talks about the, the story of the money lender and how he had these two debtors. You know, every one of us in here are a debtor to Christ. Every one of us in here have, have, have sinned, and because of our sin, we need a Savior. Jesus died on the cross not to cover His sins, but to cover ours. How often do you comprehend that fact? How often do you comprehend that truth that Jesus died on the cross for you? 
The second word that we need to look at is the word gratitude. Your gratitude should push you to change. This woman was so pushed, so driven because of her brokenness that she was willing to sacrifice what she had. She was willing to change. The last question I want you to ask, and and this is really a a springboard into what we're going to talk about next week, is do you serve out of intimacy with God or out of duty? Why do you do what you do in service to God? I am far from obtained to perfection. But you know what I find out? The more and more I understand what God has done for me, the more broken I am. And the more broken I am, the more I want to serve Him. Not as a requirement, but as a response. I grew up in church, and as as a young kid, I was told, you need to serve, you need to serve. And so I found, as a young kid and as a teenager, getting involved in service, and my motives oftentimes were so wrong. My motives were, you know, as a young kid, it was, uh, oh, I can, I can, I remember I, the first time I ever worked in Awana, I was, I, I was a ninth grader and I worked in Awana and it was fantastic because I got to get out of the service and I got to be in charge of little kids. You know, as, as I get closer in my relationship with God, I become more aware of my sin. And as I become more aware of my sin, then I do not serve out a requirement. I reserve it as a response. And the word I want you to think about is service. Next week is our Vision Sunday. And our vision for this year is really rather simple. If you've followed what we've been doing the last few years, and you probably already know what it is, but our vision for this year is that we want, I, I want us as a church to serve. I want us as a church to find ways to serve others, not because we are better, not because we have to, but because we have such a response to the forgiveness of God that we have nothing else we can do but serve. That woman did what she did, not because she was required. That woman did what she did because she did not know any better way to thank God for forgiveness. She didn't care the risk. She didn't care the humiliation. She didn't care the mockery. None of that mattered. As a church, what about you? What is your response in service to God? We're going to get into next week, what does that mean for our church and, uh, and how does that look for us for this year? You know, and, and my outline, I'll give it to you now. My outline for next week is that we, are, we need to serve each other, individuals inside this church. We need to serve, uh, um, we, we, we need to serve the church itself and, and serving in areas of church, but we need to serve the world. We need to be a people who are about service. I'm excited about what God has for us for this year. And next week, I want to give you ways that we're going to serve. And I don't want to make it more cumbersome for you. I don't want to make it more of a burden. I want to make it, we, we have talked about it, and we want to make it something where you, you serve and it's a thrill to serve God because of what He's done for you. I challenge you to think about that.
I asked you the question at the very beginning, is do you have a knowledge of God or a relationship with Him? That's what I want to close with this morning. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for who You are. God, I am thankful that I do have a knowledge of You. Lord, I know You're holy. I know You're righteous. I also know I have a knowledge of myself. And I know that I am wicked. I'm a sinner. I try to do what's right to please You, but as Paul said, the times when I try to do right, I fail. We try again and we fail. But Lord, by Your grace, You give us victory. By Your grace, You give us the ability to fight those things and to defeat them little by little, bit by bit. Lord, my response to You can be only of service. My desire is to have a relationship with You, to know You the same way I know uh, people around me that matter to me. Lord, I pray that you'll be with each person here. Lord, we start with maybe there's those here that don't have a relationship with you because they've never come to a place where they place their faith in you, like this woman did, or they've never really trusted in you for salvation. Lord, I pray that you'll help them to see that, that your Holy Spirit will convict them and they'll make that decision. Lord, I pray that you'll be with Christians who maybe are battling... uh, a false view of you. They have a knowledge, but they don't have a relationship. I pray that you'll help them to have that desire. Give us a passion for you. We ask this in your name. Amen.